Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, audience. This is James Kandasamy. Uh, you're listening to Achieve Wealth Podcast through Value at uh, Real Estate Investing. Today, we have an awesome guest. His name is Nikolai Rai, He's, who's the founder and CEO of Amrex, which is a, an acronym for Multifamily Real Estate Exchange. He's considered by many of his peers in North America as the leading expert in apartment investing with over $1 billion analysis, uh, underwriting, and transactions. He's also a pioneer in mid-cap uh, multifamily financial engineering, which is, uh, you know, uh, he's regarded as the teacher, advisor, and also the keynote speaker. He's also a real estate uh, tech innovator through his current work on the uh, multifamily real estate, big data, artificial intelligence, and property tokenization using blockchain technology. Hey, Nikolai, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Okay, so do you want to mention anything that I missed out about your credibility? <laughs> no, that sounded like a mouthful. <laughs> it's going to be a very technology-centric uh, discussion today, right? Yeah, the, the full story of that is actually probably a lot longer, but I mean, that could be for... That could be for a whole other episode of the origin story of how how you get to you know how you get to to where we get in life and in sure. both professionally and personally. But yeah, that's uh, that's the gist of it. You know, everything that's underwriting and uh, you know acquisitions, dispositions, refinancing, uh, obviously portfolio management, uh, whether it be the small market, small cap market, you know, between five and hundred units, all the way up to the mid market, uh, you know, market cycles, and obviously I have a very strong penchant for uh, data and for technology so so that's yeah. that's pretty much what i've done over the last uh i guess over the last uh, seven or eight years is focused I, you know for, for the most part i focused mo- mostly on acquisition so i was in charge of an investment banking firm we worked uh you know on, on both sides of the transaction advisory side of things for investors and we also worked with a lot of ultra high net worth investors uh, that's kind of where i i built my specialty eventually ultra high net worth investors and private equity firms and family offices. And, uh, you know, by doing all that, I kept on kept on getting annoyed with the fact that the multifamily market is so fragmented mm-hmm. and the uh, the data is so opaque. And I just kept on, on thinking to myself, you know, this, this, this market, this, which is an important market. I mean, the apartment building investment market is a, is a almost a $10 trillion market worldwide. It's a, it answers a primary need of human beings, which is to have somewhere to live. And yet, you know, we're, we're kind of in the dark ages as multifamily investors because, number one, we don't have access to any centralized marketplace. If you compare, say, to a stock investor who can go on the NASDAQ and trade every type of tech stock or a stock market investor who go on the New York Stock Exchange, and we don't have access to any data. The data is very raw. It's very... Uh, it's kind of, you know, what I call legacy data. If you look at like CoStar and, and all these various data providers who provide this very raw and inert data without any actual, you know, context around the data and without any helps with regards to making decisions business intelligence wise as a multifamily real estate investor. So that's kind of how 
that's how my career has gone so far. I went, that's why I went from transactions and more towards data and technology because I felt like there was so much work to be done to help investors just you know be better investors pretty much. Okay, so let me understand Amrex uh, because I think it's important since you have a lot of passion in it right now. Yeah, multifamily real estate exchange. If I understand it correctly, so what you're saying is right now the data is so fragmented, and yeah. a lot of times when you know people like me underwrite deals, you know we have to do so much of work. I need to. I mean, every deal I underwrite takes like three to four hours because I need to pay <laughs> all the property management financials, and there's so much of mistakes in the property management financials. You have to do T3, you have to do T12, you have to do expense ratio, you have to do market comps and all that. So what you're saying is you are going to summarize all that and make it so easy to look at so that it can be traded as a commodity. Commodity, is that right? Not necessarily. So, so, so the idea is... Um, Taking you as an example or any of the listeners right now who are multifamily real estate investors actually acquiring properties, mm-hmm. let's say you have the capital ready or your investors have the capital ready to, to, uh, to allocate to an acquisition, you know, just actually finding that first property to buy or, or the next property to buy is a very uh, time intensive and energy intensive job, right? You have to go on, you have to go on all the different MLSs. You have to go on uh, the loop nets of this world and the Crexies and the 10Xs and, you and know, just, too. right. And then you have all the brokers and then you have all the broker websites and then you have all the pocket listings and, <laughs> and you have not even really touched the majority of the market. You're actually still missing probably, you know, anywhere between 25 and 50% of, of actual transactable inventory, depending which, which metro area you're in. So, so it's a lot of work, even just to look at the stuff that's on websites, that's a lot of work because you have to go on between five and 15 websites. Each website has a different user interface, has a do- this different user experience, and actually uh, shows different information. On one site, maybe on, on LoopNet, you might have the cap rate. Maybe on the MLSs, you won't have cap rate. You'll just have uh, gross revenue. So then you'll have to f- figure out your own cap right off of that. It's a lot of work, you know, and it, it, for me, I just never thought it made sense to, to not be able to say, hey, I want to buy a multifamily property, whether it be a five unit, whether it be a 50 unit or a 500 unit, I want to go onto one marketplace where all properties are centralized in a unified and normalized manner. Because that's the second point of it is, you have to be able to normalize expenses if you want to start comparing apples with apples and oranges with oranges. So that's the second phase of it. So what we're doing with MREX is we're building a unified, standardized marketplace for multifamily investors where they will be able to see every single property that exists that is for sale despite on the way it's, for, it's being sold or listed or marketed. We're going to be working with brokers, obviously. The goal is not to get rid of brokers or anything like that. That's not... That's not what our goal is. Our goal is to help brokers, help investors, just make the whole transaction process much more quicker and, and more time efficient. And that way, you know, we're making the market more, you know, just a more efficient market pretty much. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. So you are basically streamlining the whole uh, selling and buying process, I guess, just to make uh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And, and the, and the analysis, analysis process, as you said too, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's one, it's one thing finding the properties mm-hmm. and having them all in one marketplace. Okay. Let's say, let's say you have the NASDAQ. Let's say I want to invest in tech stocks rather than multifamily properties. I go on the NASDAQ and I can see every single company. I can, I can have access to inventory. Now that's what, that's the first step. Now the second step is 
once you have access to inventory and the information provided on all that inventory is normalized and standardized, well, I still have to be able to start comparing and start you know, building my own models to say, well, if I'm a cash flow investor, which stocks are generating the most cash flow relative to the other, to the rest of the inventory? So that's where you know context and, and alternative data comes into play with our platform is that we want to be able to, to offer data and tools to you as a multifamily investor to help you streamline your underwriting of the inventory that you see. So that's really the two things we're focused on at the moment. Okay, got it. Got it. So interesting. So that'll be that'll make a lot of for investors or for buyers, they would be able to see what kind of deals that they want to buy. Right. Matches what they want to get the yield out of it, I guess. Right? Exactly. And instead of going on 15 websites, well, they'll go on one website. Instead of having to, you know, start normalizing expense ratios and sifting through through T12s and T3s and, and, and doing all that, it'll already kind of be all uh, chewed up and, and kind of uh, built up already. So you can actually focus on, focus on analyzing, focus on, on comparing and, and establishing, okay, I want to buy this property using this strategy, and why would I do that versus the other property that I see over there? That's ultimately what's the most important thing. Okay, okay. So couldn't it be a good idea to match this with a crowdfunding platform? Because during the crowdfunding, they can choose what deal they want, right? Right. So so crowdfunding is an interesting thing. Uh, the problem with crowdfunding, obviously, I mean, crowdfunding... Crowdfunding has tried to kind of attack two things. Number one is liquidity, right? Because uh, as a multifamily investor, the more properties that you acquire, you increase your your, your, your net value, right? You're, you're a richer person. But the problem with that is you have, you have to leave equity in every single deal, right? The banks won't finance you 100%. So you always have to leave equity. So as you get richer and richer value-wise, you're actually cash poor because you're leaving so much equity in each property that you acquire. And there's always a part of that equity that has to stay in those properties. But the problem, the second problem is that as you get, as you become a bigger investor and you acquire more properties and you're more well-known in the market, well, you get access to better deals. But now you have less access to more money, even though you're richer. That's kind of the liquidity conundrum of multifamily investors. So that's why crowdfunding is interesting because it gives kind of, you know, after the Jobs Act, it helps multifamily investors uh, particularly syndicators to go and raise capital from you know from from investors either through the regulation CF uh, you know and, and obviously regulation D 506 C was 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 quite an upgrade also to be able to start to to market uh, uh, capital raises but uh, what we're doing is we're actually building a second platform that is is, is shadowing the MREX platform and what that platform will be doing is we're actually going to create a sort of stock market and take the crowdfunding thing a bit further because crowdfunding, as I said, tries to attack the liquidity conundrum. But the problem is, is that when you invest in a crowdfunding deal, you as an LP are stuck in that deal for the lifetime of the deal. So if it's a five, it's a three to five year exit, well, your money's stuck in that. So you, you as a passive investor or as an LP uh, do not have liquidity. That's, that's, that's one problem. And obviously, crowdfunding also helps with accessibility, right? So, so obviously, Regulation D 506C is only for accredited investors, which doesn't really help accessibility that much. Regulation CF has helped that because now that that kind of lowers the barrier to entry for everyday retail investors who don't have that much money. But it's still a fairly limited 
regulation at the moment. I know they're trying to pass a couple of bills to to increase the, the opportunity for regulation CF uh, investors. So what we're doing is we're building a second platform that's going to be basically a stock market in its own sense where, you know, through a, mar- a broker-dealer permit that we hope to get and then also through eventually a, 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 an ATS license with the SEC, we would like to be able to take it a step further and allow a multifamily investor to pretty much offer his property through one of the, the, the various regulations on that marketplace that way people could invest as passive investors as lps either through reg b reg cf or eventually maybe even reg a plus but then they would also be able to acquire or access a secondary trading market so that they're not stuck in an illiquid period of three to five years and they would actually eventually be able to retrain part of their shares or all of their shares kind of like you would in the stock market wow so it looks like you are trying to really disrupt the industry, right? So. Yeah, definitely. The industry, start, the, the, you know, multifamily real estate looks like the stock market before the arrival of the NASDAQ, right? It, yeah. it, it's like before internet, even though we have internet and multifamily real estate, mm-hmm. it's as if people are still trading kind of like stock market investors were trading on floors, you know, with papers and screaming and doing all that stuff. It, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so private nowadays, right? I mean, everybody has private. We do not know how right. even multifamily is performing under different private LLCs. Exactly. Uh, there's a lot of good news uh, out there, but there's also bad news, but nobody talks about it, right? So I think... Oh, right. And, and, and the, data, the data out there, like, like look at any of the data from, you know, even from the really big organizations, organizations like uh, NCREIF, mm-hmm. so the National Council of Real Estate Investment Trust, NCREIT, sorry. Um, even their data, when they're you know all these index, indexes and indices are based on multifamily markets, is is based on a very low volume of the actual number of transactions. So when say a a a company, a various data company says, well, the cap rate uh, right now of, of say Atlanta is 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 five percent, for example. Well, that's actually based on a very small portion of of overall transactions. So it's hard for us as multifamily investors to really be sure about the numbers that we're inputting into our underwriting models because we're basing it off so little data. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's, it is just so limited, right? Because it's, everything's done uh, on a private basis, on a syndication, right. which is right. not much of data being published out there, right? So It's like investing in the stock market, but not knowing how the stocks have performed historically. Yeah, <laughs> correct, correct. So... Um, but why do you think this would work? And because if you look at the demographic of the, I mean, because I'm looking at syndication uh, when we, whenever we buy for multifamily, but right. for me, it's just a small part of the whole market, right? right. Even right. though we are, I mean, maybe my group or my network thinks that that's the whole, whole thing how people buy multifamily. I don't right. think so that's true because I network with a lot of different type of people, right? So, so looking at the classes of, investors who are buying multifamily i think i don't know for me my thinking is maybe we are, we are one of the i am one of the lowest level part of it right because we are buying class b and c using high net worth individuals and all that but there are a lot of higher network higher uh, caliber people who are playing at a different level which we don't have which i don't have visibility maybe you have it so are you trying to look at different classes of investors and cut through all of them or are you looking at only some classes of people 
So we're trying to help what we call the small cap to mid middle market investors. Okay. So anyone who owns between five units and about, you know, I'd say around 2,500 to 5,000 units. Okay. That's kind of where we stop, you know, that's where we're focusing on because that, you know, the, the majority of transactions are actually done by, by small cap to mid market investors. You know, okay. multifamily market is historically a mom and pop market. Uh, now it's, you know, it, it has transitioned a bit. Investors are getting bigger and bigger, but the reality is that the majority of the market is not a, a institutional market, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the REIT level or the private equity firm level or family office level, uh, depending obviously which metro area you're in, right? New York City uh, is obviously more of an institutional market. In Canada, Toronto is a very institutional market, but the majority of, of cities and metro areas are still, you know, very small cap to mid market. And, and the problem is that, you know, Take you for an example as a, as a syndicator or even take someone who is not a syndicator, right? Because a lot of investors in multifamily aren't syndicators. <laughs> they just buy their own properties. You know, they end up with maybe, you know, anywhere between 50 and 500 units as, as time goes by. Now, the problem with, with those types of investors and syndicators as yourself is that you do not have access to a team of underwriters. You don't have access to, you know, expensive data let's say a real estate investment trust has, or that a very big private equity firm has, you don't have access to all those analysts. So, uh, you know, we want to try and make sure that the market stays very level and stays as a level playing field because, you know, ultimately I think the multifamily real estate market is very important for for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, you know, everyone talks about the disparity of of wealth, right? Of the the 1% and how the, the disparity is getting bigger and bigger. And we could do a whole podcast on, on that and why it's happened and where it's kind of going. But ultimately, I think, you know, the multifamily market is probably the market, uh, it's probably the asset class that offers the best returns based on on risk, like the best risk-adjusted returns if you look at sharp ratios and Sortino ratios and all these things. Now, it's also been proven, uh, there's a lot of studies on this, a lot of university studies done on this, that, you know, uh, social mobility comes from education, and access to property, right? The reason why people have been so poor for so long in like the Brazilian favelas or in the uh, Indian shanty towns is because people don't have education and they do not have access to property. They are not able to become landowners or owners of their own homes, even less become investment property owners, right? So I think multifamily stays as a very important asset class because on top of filling a basic need of human beings, that means providing somewhere to live, it also is a, a very important mover for the everyday investor, the mom and pop, the, just the normal person like me and you, to be able to access a very good, a very safe wealth-building asset class uh, that does not have the same volatility or the same pitfalls as, say, the stock market and other types of asset classes. So, so I think it's very important that we provide, you know, tools and data and, and allow for the smaller investor, the investor that has less than a thousand or, or even less than 5,000 units to be able to continue on performing, and continue on profiting from this, this asset class. Got it, got it. So let's go to a bit more details on some of the big data and artificial intelligence, right? So, yeah. So, yeah, I studied artificial intelligence almost 24 years ago. I mean, now it has become really 
popular, right? A lot of startups with artificial intelligence, right? So Absolutely. first of all, let's define what, can you define artificial intelligence in your terms, in terms of real estate? Because I studied well, from an engineering standpoint. Yeah, well, I'm not an engineer by trade. So obviously I'll give more of a generalist uh, definition mm-hmm. to the people listening, which okay. I think is, is probably going to be very good. The important thing is to understand kind of the, the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, machine learning is more of a, it's, it's a less automated process, right? So a lot of what people are calling artificial intelligence is ultimately just machine learning. And uh, what it is, is that let's say, um, let's say, uh, you know, I'm a data scientist or an, an, an economist and I uh, build a predictive model using, say, Monte Carlo simulations. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I, set a, uh, I build a set of hypotheses. I plug them into my Monte Carlo simulation, and uh, then that runs. Now, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, what, what becomes very fun is, you know, statistics are a funny thing, right? And, and econometric mo- modeling is a very funny thing because even though uh, you know people in the economics world uh, swear by by pre- their predictive analytics, the reality is in data science it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So, so the outputs always depend on the inputs. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's say you're doing an underwriting model and you're looking at an apartment building, and and uh, you say, well, if I buy this apartment building this way, my internal rate of return is going to be twenty five percent. Okay. Now, internal rate of return, net present value, is a uh, is an output. Are there outputs based ultimately on the strength of those outputs are only as good as the strength of the inputs. Correct. And the very important inputs that affect, say, IRR and NPV, which ultimately are the two two of the most important metrics to help you decide whether to buy a property or not, um, are rent growth, expense inflation. Refinancing interest rate if, if your IR and NPV is based on on refinancing because obviously IR and NPV has to base be based on a on an exit model and the exit model can either be a refi or it can be a sale a disposition and then if it's a disposition well your IR and NPV is based ultimately off the rever the, the reversion cap rate so the exit cap rate upon sale now what everyone's doing right now in the multifamily market especially small investors and mid-market investors is they're, they're just entering these inputs. Uh, you know, they're just playing it by ear. And they're not even playing it by ear. They're coming up with these random inputs that are based off absolutely nothing. I just had a huge discussion on LinkedIn about this with a couple of investors where one guy was saying, well, you know, if I buy at a 5% cap rate, my underwriting model, what I do is I for to establish the reversion cap rate. So the cap rate upon eventual sale, let's say in five years, is I add 20 basis points to the purchase cap rate per year. So if I bought it at five today at a 5% cap rate, well, then five years from now, I predict that I'll sell at a 6% cap rate. Okay. And, you know, people kind of hide behind this, this type of rule of thumb model saying, well, I'm being conservative. Therefore, my underwriting model is very good. The reality of it is your underwriting model is bullshit, okay? It's not worth the, the Excel spreadsheet that it's been written upon. The reality is, where are you pulling this, 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 uh, this expansion of, a, of, of 10 or 20%, 10 or 20 basis points per year? What are you basing that off, right? That's what anyone should be asking. What are you basing this off? Well, I'm being conservative. 
How do you know you're being conservative? Yep. How do you know you're not being optimistic, right? You could be being, you could actually be very optimistic with that. And conservative might be an, an increase of 0.25 a year, right? The reality of, the, of it is that everyone underwriting deals right now, they're not basing their inputs off any data, right? And they're definitely not basing it off any predictive analytics because it's one thing to have the data, the historical data, but you know, just because you have historical data doesn't mean necessarily that that's gonna repeat itself in the future. That's why we have predictive analytics. So let's say that based on historical data, your 5% acquisition cap rate should actually be a 5.5 in five years. Now, the problem with that is that the future, history is never guaranteed of the future, right? So that's why you then have to plug in various scenarios where you're considering this. And that's where predictive analytics become very difficult because you're pretty much just kind of taking a shot in the dark and basing things off the past, but you're putting in like a, a margin of error. With machine learning and artificial intelligence, you're able to make your predictive models better uh, ex post based on ex ante results. So let's say you create a model to predict the future cap rate. Well, you want to predict the future cap rate of in five years if your goal is to sell within five years. Well, if you predict that today, the probability that your, your five-year cap rate from now is going to be precise is a lot lower than, let's say, in four years, you predict the, the, the cap, that, that same cap rate, right? Because you'll be closer to your exit. So there'll be less room for margin of error. So what machine learning and artificial intelligence will allow you to do is to consistently kind of reset your model as time advances. So maybe your initial model based upon acquisition was off. But as you advance in time, the artificial intelligence and, and machine learning continues on training that same model, the same algorithm that you had, and, and, and adapts the various inputs and algorithms to make it more and more precise as you get, as you get closer. And on top of that, as you get closer, the, 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 the range of distribution of probabilities gets smaller. So it's a double effect. Your, your, your predictive model gets even tighter and tighter as time goes by. And that's where machine learning and artificial intelligence can really help out is that instead of just plugging in these, these ridiculous exit cap rates and ridiculous growth rates and ridiculous uh, inflation of expenses and absolutely ridiculous refinancing interest rates, well, we get closer and closer to being able to actually put in inputs that are based on something very, very solid. And then therefore our underwriting models will become more and more precise. And what we want in underwriting when you're buying a property, whether you're a syndicator and you're responsible for money of your LPs or whether it's your own money, the goal of underwriting is not to be conservative. That's not what the goal of underwriting is. And anyone who says that they underwrite and they're conserv their underwriting is conservative, what they're really telling you is they don't know how to underwrite, okay? <laughs> You don't want to be conservative. You want to be right on the dot. That's what you want to do with underwriting. You want to be as precise as possible because the reason that you buy the property today is you buy it for future cash flows. And cash flows can come in various ways. They can come in annualized cash flow, so, so free cash flow. They come in the appreciation of the asset, 
So the value that that asset gains because of various market dynamics and because of the way you're you're managing that property, and they also come through the the the, uh, the capitalization of of your mortgage. So there's part of your mortgage that you're paying down, which is principal, right? So those are the three cash flows that you can receive. Now, uh, when you're underwriting a deal and you're looking at how much you should pay for, say, this hundred unit building you're looking at, well, if your inputs are off, you might buy that property, but it's a bad acquisition because you were uh, too optimistic in your inputs. But it also happens that you were too conservative in your inputs, therefore you didn't buy the property. Because if you inputted that the exit cap rate on that property is 7%, but in reality, five years from now, the exit cap rate is five and three quarters, well, guess what? You missed one hell of an opportunity. Correct. And in, in real estate investing, the most important thing is time value of money. We only have a very limited, limited time during our lifetimes in which we can invest and create wealth. And we only have so many hours during a day. Therefore, the cost of opportunity and the time value of money are the things that we should consider the most in our underwriting. And that's really where machine learning and artificial intelligence will help investors become much, much better. Obviously, you also need education, right? You have to understand these. I mean, this is advanced stuff, and I'm trying to kind of explain it in a simple way where people who don't have master's degrees and PhDs in finance and engineering can understand it. But the reality of the matter is that multifamily investing is very, it's a very complex, it's a very sophisticated asset class, and you need a certain level of education. The problem being right now, despite the very high level of education that some investors have, we just don't have solid predictive analytics tools and data to be able to make sure that we're actually able to transfer our, transfer our education into, into decent acquisition. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting because exit cap rate is always being uh, misused or oh. you know, misconservative, oh, right? So. Oh, well. Well, even entering cap rates, even acquisition cap rates, mm-hmm. I see people saying, well, you know, uh, I'm not going to buy that property because it's a, it's, a, it's a five cap rate and the market's trading at 5.5. Okay, is that a stabilized property? No, it's a value-add property. Well, the cap rate doesn't, the cap rate is, is, is meaningless then. Yeah. A cap rate is a metric of a stabilized asset. If the asset is not stabilized, there is no cap rate. Because a cap rate is a perpetual annuity. It's a return metric based on an unlevered perpetual annuity, which means the same cash flow every year forever. Correct. Now, if you want to be able to calculate that, your property has to be stabilized. So if you're not buying a property because it's a five cap rate and the market's trading at 5.5, but it's a value add deal, well, I'm I'll sorry buy it all day long. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell you, you should change. You should change fields. You should go play. You know, you should maybe you should go to Las Vegas and, and put it all on red. <laughs> well, not only that. I mean, not only new investors doesn't understand the entry cap rate doesn't matter no. the value add you. And I don't know. I never see a reason on to do a stabilized deal, not on commercial, right? So. For me, I'm, no. I'm always a value-add guy. That's why I need... Right. Well, well, unless you're a private equity firm or you're a family office or, or you're a REIT or you're an ultra-high net worth individual who now has a you know, net, net, net value of anywhere between 10 and $150 million, uh, there's no real reason to do stabilized deals, right? The, the, the reason you want to do stabilized deals is because you have a very high net worth or because you're trying to 
de-risk your portfolio, right? Correct. That's why you would do stabilized deals for, for a small cap or mid-cap investor. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time, I mean, commercial is always a value at play. I mean, of course. I mean, there's a lot of people doing stabilized deal deal nowadays just by getting higher mortgage and or getting slightly lower price, play on the mortgage side with the interest well, to get yeah. some cash flow. But and that that can work if you're if you're a neurosurgeon, right? If mm-hmm. if you're a surgeon making a million and a half a year and you're 35 and you say, Well, you know what, I want to start buying multifamily property because I like I like real estate and I like the tangible part of the asset class, but I don't need any money right now because I'm making a million, I'm making a million and a half a year. I don't need any cash flow and I'm very long term and I just want to build myself a nice retirement, you know, because, you know, uh, that's what I want as an objective. Well, then, yes, buy stabilized property or be an LP in a syndication or purchase a stock in a REIT. That, that's fine. But if your goal is to increase your wealth exponentially uh, in a short period of time, and what I mean by short period of time is fifteen to five to fifteen years, well then, uh, yeah, you're going to have to do some kind of value add deal. You can't just yeah. do uh, financial arbitrage all the time. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of deals out there in different asset class which can give you that cash flow, right? I mean, you can yeah. buy a stabilized mobile home park. You know, it'll give right. you higher cash on cash than any multifamily deals. Right. So even self-storage or even multifamily, which has been stabilized, you'll get you'll get good cash flow. But how long will that cash flow be guaranteed? Because you have a very tight DSCR at that point of time. And let's say the market turn, you may not your your DSCR might be compromised right now, right? Because you don't have any buffer. Especially if you especially if you did not uh, properly manage the terms of your uh, of your mortgages, right? So if, if that's very dangerous. Like if you feel that you're, if you feel that the market's going to shift, say interest rate wise, the easiest way to kind of play yourself out of the situation you just talked about is, you know, just take longer term mortgages, you know, make sure that the mortgage does not end in five years, make sure it's a 10 year term or even maybe a 30 year term, right? That's, that's the easiest way to manage that risk. Yeah. Just do a hard loan, right? Which gives you like right. 30 or 45 years. I mean, there's right. a, the other trick that a lot of people play is, you know, showing only, uh, cash and cash based during IO period. And nowadays people are getting five years, seven years IO period. And sometimes people think, oh, I would not hold, you know, that deal for long term. I mean, you are hoping on not holding, holding, right? But you don't know what's going to be happening to the economy, right? So It's a dangerous game to play. And I'm not saying don't play it, but make sure that you have the, make sure you have the education and the know-how to be able to manage that risk. It's all risk management. Ultimately, that's what it is. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, pro- the problem is a lot of people are doing this and they don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's so much of capital out there right now looking for money to be placed in somewhere. And oh, definitely. people do not think that, oh, rather than I'm putting 1% in the CD, I might as well put here and get like 6 7%, right? Cash flow, right? And and that's that's the retail market. Like that's... That's small investors like me and you. The, the reality of it is the real cap, the real capital flow right now is, is at the at the institutional level. Mm-hmm. There is so much high-level money and smart money searching for returns right now. I mean, we can't even fathom it as small investors how much money. I mean, family offices typically, uh, if you take the family office market, typically always allocated maybe like, I don't know, depending on the family office in the region, but usually anywhere between, you know, maybe eight and 12% of their overall ca- asset allocation, capital allocation 
to what they call alternative assets, right? Okay. And real estate is part of alternative assets. Now, over the last 10, I'd say over the last 10 years, the last decade, uh, family offices have become more and more in tune to the real estate markets. Uh, high net worth families also, especially towards like multifamily real estate. And more and more, real estate is no longer considered just as, as something under the alternative asset umbrella, but now it's kind of becoming its own umbrella. And what that's doing is that instead of family offices, and we're talking about family offices that have trillions of dollars, right? These are not, these are not small things. These are big moving bodies with a lot of capital. We're talking about multi-multi, multi, sorry, billions of dollars, not trillions, multi-billion dollar family offices that are now, instead of allocating, uh, you know, 8% to real estate, well, now they're allocating 20% to real estate. So, and, and that's, that's, that's at scale. Like, there's a lot of them out there. And we haven't even talked about the private equity firms. We haven't even talked about the pension funds, the international pension funds. You know, uh, people talk about globalization and international money, thinking that it's just, you know, rich Russians going to Sunny Isles, Florida, buying... $10 million condominiums. That's not, what, that's not what it is. The global movement of money to American and Canadian real estate are things like uh, the Amsterdam uh, Teachers Pension Fund or, or, or Government Workers Pension Fund, you know, allocating, uh, allocating you know, $100 billion to the American real estate market. Now, that's, that, has a big, that, that puts a big dent on the supply and demand of real estate, and that's what ultimately drives uh, property values much more than interest rates. Well, interest rates only in, only influence property values. Like people, people were talking about, especially in the last couple of years. Oh, you know, if interest rates go up, cap rates will follow and they'll go up. That's not true. Capital flow drives cap rates and values of properties in multifamily. Interest rates only influence cap rates and values. Very interesting perspective. That's that's you are right. There's so many, too much money, even out of uh, United States, is looking oh. for money to place, right? Like the other yeah. day, I can call from UK. There's a family office who want to invest in UK, and they're looking for like operators like me. And I was asking them uh, what's their return expectation. They say there's 22 percent IRR, 20 percent IRR. I said, well, I don't <laughs> need you guys. I can get that money in the US, right? So, right exactly. <laughs> So, and all and all the all the money from the quantitative easing that followed the the, the two thousand eight <laughs> crash. I mean, all that quantitative easing money, a lot of it still after even ten years has not even found a place for it yet, right? So there, there's a lot of money chasing deals. There's a lot of money chasing deals. Correct, correct, correct. That's true. That's true. So uh, so coming back to the exit cap rate. So I know that's one of the hardest parameter to measure, right? So absolutely. Um, but can you clarify again, how would you use artificial intelligence to find a more accurate exit cap rate, you know, T minus five, like T minus five, right. Right. five years earlier before you hit the five years mark of selling, assuming five years of selling. So, so it's a computing power, right? So mm-hmm. it's a computing, what, what we do is like, we'll, we'll build, so we'll be, we'll say, uh, I'm sorry for anyone who hasn't studied, uh, you know, high level university finance, but, or statistics. You know, we'll build we'll build a, a say a, a, a regression model. So we'll look at past data. We'll plug all that in, in order to build a predictive model, a future model, being able to come out with with future cap rates. 
And you know, the, the more data that we're able to plug into our uh, regression model. So, so historically, what uh, real estate statisticians and, and economists have used is what they call the linear regression model mm -hmm. uh, used in Monte Carlo simulations. Now, the problem with the linear regression model is that uh, you know, uh, past transactions or data are 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 also affected a lot by various things like you know political environment and, and, and capital markets and there's a whole bunch of factors. So so there's a new model that's being used more and more, uh, especially with a lot of postdoctoral students in, in statistics. It's called a quantile regression model. So that's where we're able to create that same kind of, and I'm, I'm saying this in, in layman's terms as much as possible, uh, where we're able to, to take past historical data, build that kind of linear model, uh, you know, kind of like build that line chart for people to understand, and we kind of repeat that line chart in the future, but we're also able to start to weigh that, those data points with, with various things like a new government, with, with quantitative easing, with all these, uh, you know, with, with, with the war, with various factors that maybe affected that models to make it less linear. And then we're able to start to, 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 to better predict future stats and future cap rates. So that's the first kind of, that's the first step of it. Mm -hmm. The second step is, let's say right now we've built our quantile regression model and uh, now we compute it. And what it says to us is, well, uh, T minus five cap rate, so five-year cap rate is going to be between, uh, let's say, uh, you know, we have a couple tracks. It's, it's hard to explain for people who have not done statistics, but we have a couple tracks, and ultimately, you know, what it says is that most probability, the highest probability is that cap rate is going to be between 5.75 and 6.10% and in five years for that specific market. Now, like I said, as we get closer to the five-year period from now, the, the, the less the margin of error is, right? Because we're closer and multifamily market moves very slowly, right? So predicting, the, and the easiest way to understand it is predicting 25 years out from now is very hard, right? Mm -hmm. Your 25-year prediction is going to be way more, there's more room for it to be completely off than your two-year prediction. Correct. So we, we, we built a model for the five-year prediction. And then, starting tomorrow, every day, our artificial intelligence recalculates that model. So as it recalculates it, the model gets more and more precise. Because let's say we took statistics from, 20, from, from today to 20 years ago. Let's say we took the cap rate of that market starting from today and 20 years back. Well, obviously, the last 20 years... The next 20 years are not going to be exactly like the last 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. But that's ultimately what statistics do, right? We try and kind of say, well, let's take the last 20 years. There's a margin of error, and that's what's going to be the next 20 years. So what's cool with the artificial intelligence is without actually having to do anything, every day the artificial intelligence kind of brings the model a day closer and adapts the model with more and more weight on what's going on right now rather than what happened 20 years ago. And it also is able, the artificial intelligence is also able to measure what today it predicted for yesterday versus what actually happened. Mm. And what's the spread and difference and what caused that spread? And therefore, once it's able to determine what caused that spread, it'll 
add that into the equation for the future cap rate model. So it becomes much more precise. Yeah, but don't you have to run it in iteration on a daily or monthly basis towards the whole investment process? But how do you make it on day zero? Well, today we are buying today. How does it iterate then when on a day zero? Well, what do you mean? Sorry, I don't understand the question. So my question is, you said the data is being fed into the system, right? To get right. a more accurate exit cap rate, right? But right. but you're making a decision to buy today. Uh, is the iteration happening from today throughout the investment cycle? Or do you do it earlier before you decide to buy a deal? Oh, you, you mean, okay, yeah, I understand what you mean. So so like for determining your actual uh, uh, purchase cap rate. Correct. No, no, not right. purchase, yeah, whatever price that I'm gonna pay today because that's what I'm getting into the deal, right? That's the point of me making a decision whether this is a good deal and I'm going to be raising money and telling everybody this is a good deal. Right. Well, I mean, determining the, the, the purchase cap rate is a whole other set of statistics and data models. <clears throat> That's more, I'd say, determining the today's cap rate is, is, is much more uh, uh, an endeavor of collecting more historical data, right? Mm-hmm. Because like I said, <clears throat> Let's say uh, JLL Jones Lang LaSalle, which is one of the biggest brokerages. You know, they 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 uh, they uh, come out with reports and say, okay, well, the cap rate, let's say in Austin, is you know five point two percent. Let's say the mean cap rate is five point two percent. Well, that's based on maybe what like thirty or forty percent of of actual transactions that happen because they don't have data on like the off market transactions or the pocket listings or or this and that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, they haven't normalized the cap rates uh, on whether, let's say a, a building traded at a 4.6 cap rate. Well, like we said, if that property wasn't stabilized, well, then that cap rate is, is off, right? That's not a good cap rate. So that's a second thing. So, so, so for establishing what, what you should pay today, intrinsic, what's the intrinsic value today? That's ultimately what I think the question is. And correct me if I'm wrong, but, but let's say you're looking at a 100-unit property what is the actual uh, what is the actual intrinsic value of that property? What's the real cap rate I should be buying at? Well, that's a question of having the proper volume of data. Okay, number one. So that's what we're working on right now is making sure we we keep on building our database so that instead of our our market cap rates being based only off thirty or forty percent of inventory or transactions, well, it'll be based off maybe 60, 70, 75 percent. Therefore, that cap rate becomes more precise. Secondly, we also take out, we actually look at every transaction and say um, qualitatively, because that's the first thing is a quantitative aspect, right? In statistics, we have quantitative and qualitative. So the quality of the data, once we have the quantity, we look at the cap rates and say, okay, that property traded for a 4.2 cap rate. Was that a stabilized property? No, it was not. Okay. Once we add the CapEx, we have the new revenues, and we look now, we adjust the the sales price for CapEx, but we also adjust adjust NOI. Now we can look at the stabilized cap rate. So that's the qualitative aspects of it. And now we're able to say, here are the market cap rates. Here's the low end of cap rates. Here's the high end of cap rates. Here's the mean or the median. And here's that range of cap rates, right? Because cap rates are are based off the cap rate calculation. Ultimately, even though people think it's NOI divided by 
by sale price, which is not true. That's not what a cap rate is. That's how you find the cap rate of a sold stabilized property. The, the actual cap rate calculation or formula is a mathematical equation of R minus G. It's algebra. So R being return minus G, which is growth. And R is defined as RF plus RP. So the risk-free rate plus the risk premium that you as an investor are looking for or that the market is looking for, a perceived risk premium, obviously. So what we want to do then, and that would be like a third step, and we're, we're not at that level right now, but I, I hope within the next couple of years we will be. And I'm sure you as an engineer are probably understanding how, how valuable our, our, our ability to do that would, would become for the market. Yes. Is that then you're, start, you're starting to be able to say, well, right now, that property is being listed at a, say, let's say the, 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 the range for cap rates in Austin is really five to six. Obviously, six is going to be in the worst neighborhoods, right? And five is going to be in the best neighborhoods because it's a matter of risk, right? Well, then you're looking at the property. Let's say it's at a 5.7 cap rate. But it's kind of on the limit of a bad neighborhood, good neighborhood. And then you're able to intrinsically say, but the intrinsic cap rate of that property, the real intrinsic value of that cap rate is actually 5.3. Now, if you didn't know that and you just said, well, the, the, the average cap rate is 5.7, well, you'd say, well, it's not much of a deal. I'm not going to buy that property, right? But now with this new data, what you're able to see is, wait a minute. It looks more expensive than it would, than what it should be, but in reality, it's not. It's actually cheaper because the real intrinsic value is a 5.3 cap rate, and that would really unlock the potential of what we call value investing. What like a Warren Buffett has has built his entire career off in the stock market. Well, he's been a, he was able to build that. Value investing exists so much in real in, in the stock market because of the quantity and the quality of the data, right? The quantity of the data is accessible to everyone. The quality of the data is a bit harder to get, the qualitative aspects. That's why Warren Buffett was, has been such a great investor because he invested so heavily into being able to pull out the qualitative aspects of the data. Well, now we would be able to do the same thing. You would be able to do the same thing as a multifamily investor and you would have access to the quantity of data needed for you then to increase your knowledge based on the qualitative aspects of it and then be able to properly price that acquisition. And then once you're able to do that, well, then you can go and say to your investors, look, this is why I'm buying this deal, right? This is why it's a good deal. And if on top of that, you're able to be more precise with your exit cap rate and the growth rates of your revenues and expenses and your refinancing rates, well, you're going to be a much more confident investor. Then you're making a really, uh, what you call... Uh, it's a more efficient market. It's, it's, it's a more efficient way of actually determining your purchase, right? Because... Of course. Yeah, you can't really just say generally, okay, Austin is what, five cap. It's not true. There are different we're, we're, markets, sub-markets too, right? It's kind of scary to say, but we're all kind of investing in multifamily kind of half-blindfolded, half right? Half-blindfolded, yeah. The, right. the guys like me and you, and there's a whole bunch of other guys out there, really intelligent investors, we're all investing based on intuition, experience, uh, a very strong knowledge base, but we're ultimately kind of investing with one eye closed. Now, it's even worse for people who don't have our knowledge base and experience because they're all investing completely blindfolded, right? <laughs>
Interesting. So yeah, if you can get that kind of data where you can look at the sub-market and what's the potential, especially if it's in the path of growth, right? And what's the right. risk that you're, you're buying, right? Right. Because right. there's some deals, even though you buy it at, at the lowest cap rate for that market, it could be still the best growth because it could be just like another big explosion uh, in terms of jobs is going to be happening in that area just because of the path of growth. And, and that, that, that's, so, that, that's so important because if, if in your pro form on your underwriting, you predicted a 2% growth rate of revenue, but in those five years, the analyzed growth rate was six. Well, you probably didn't buy that property, right? But mm -hmm. you should have. Correct. And the other thing is the same. If you predicted a 6% growth rate and it was two, well, then you bought that property and you shouldn't have, right? Correct. But, but you know, the one, what most people will say is, well, the guy who predicted 6%, he should have put in 2%. Like he should have been conservative, right? That's not necessarily true. That's a half truth. That's, that's actually a, a mistake in, in logical reasoning because the other guy who says, well, I'm going to plug in a 2% growth rate because that's what historically it happens. Well, what happens if you invest in a market where the growth rate is actually 6%, right? And that the other intelligent investors knew or predicted that it would be 6%, well, they're willing to overpay according to you for a property. And then you end up not buying anything. You're not generating any returns. You're not building your wealth. And you're just kind of sitting on the sidelines there, you know, bah humbugging, saying, well, the market's paying way too much for the properties. And, you know, these guys are stupid, stupid money, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to wait for the market to crash and blah, blah, blah. Hey, I know guys who've been saying this since 2012. And they have not bought anything since 2012. They haven't generated any returns. All under the pretext of being conservative investors. You know what? They're not conservative investors. You know why? Because they're not investors. Because they haven't bought anything. Because they played themselves out of the market and they're sitting on the sidelines. And they're not, they're just making up for a lack of precision in their underwriting through, you know, this, this kind of pseudo-conservatism. Yeah. Well, I think it just depends on the sophistication of the investors, right? If you look at yeah. nowadays, multifamily has become so popular. So many people who did not have the financial education background or the way to analyze a deal, right? There's a lot of parameters that goes into any deals, right? That's Absolutely. what you mentioned. You mentioned so many parameters. Nobody really look at that, right? Everybody said multifamily is good. I'll buy it. And it went 300%. And they said, oh, I'm a really good operator. <laughs> well, actually, you should have made 500% because the market gave you at least 400%. And you Amen. 100%, right? Amen. You just did 300%. Why did you do 300%? Right? So. Amen. And that, <laughs> and that comes down to what we call the search for alpha, right? Correct. You want to outperform the market. And yeah. all these people, and you know, there's a whole bunch of them now. They're gurus and mentors and coaches, and they're giving all these online classes or seminars or whatnot, and or, or they're boasting about being such great real estate investors. And the reality of it is they don't know what even, they don't even know what they did. They're like, well, I generated X percent returns and I've created X amount of millions of dollars in profit over the last five and 10 years. Yeah, but that's actually quite average. That's what the market did. As long as you were in the market, of course, that's what you generated. Correct. Now, did you generate more than what, than what the market did? That's the real question, right? And, and unfortunately, there's not enough people in the market asking that question. And if you're a passive investor, that's the question you should be asking your syndicator or your GP. It's not, oh, oh, this is what you generated. Great. That sounds awesome. You generated 
22% IRR annually over the last five years. What did the market generate? Yeah. Correct. Well, the market generated 23. Oh, so you're not, you're not that great. You're not that great. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> I remember the other day I saw someone, uh, he said, oh, I made 60% in one year. I bought it in first year. I bought it in, I, and I sold it in you know, 12 months. I made 60%. I said, well, you should have made like 100%, right? So, exactly. <laughs> so the market went up by that much, right? So, and that's why, you know, that's why I, I, I'm, uh, that's why I'm, I'm so uh, bullish on education and why I think it's so important that multifamily investors uh, get educated and uh, push their knowledge base because you know we're not we're not, this is not this is not Nintendo this is not Xbox we're not just playing you know baseball on, on our PlayStation Three or PlayStation Four mm -hmm. this is serious business and even right. more so if you're a syndicator and I just think the knowledge base you know needs to continuously be expanded and it's not and and that's why data also needs to be there because knowledge without data is is also quite useless. Correct, correct. So coming back to your being the alpha in the market, right? So, I mean, I know you can look at different market appreciation versus your, I mean, you, how much you are making money, right? So, so coming to, let's say for a decision where you have a deal in your hand and you're deciding whether you want to sell or you want to refi or you know, 1031 exchange, right? So can you give us a good methodology to, to make that decision? To make the decision on, on whether you beat the market or whether you want to sell a deal or whether you want to refinance or whether you want to hold it for long term or you want to do a 1031 exchange, how would you approach it? Well, um, I'd approach it on a very individual basis. Number one, I think uh, everyone has a very different investor profile. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, and what I what I mean by investor profile is is you know what type of returns do you want and when. What are these strengths and weaknesses that you possess as a, either an owner operator or a syndicator or whatnot? Um, what access to capital do you have? How patient is that capital? What's the cost of that capital, right? Now, if it's your own money, obviously it's probably gonna be the most patient money with the cheapest cost of capital. Uh, if you're raising money from, 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 from other people, well then obviously there is a, a, a less patient aspect to it and the cost of capital is gonna be higher. If you're taking money from bridge loans, well, that's even worse. And if you're taking money from hard money lenders, well, then obviously your cost of capital is going to be very, very high, right? So these are all things that you have to consider. You have to also have to consider where you are in your career with regards to what, what it is that you want to achieve, either, either as, a, as annual cash flow or just overall net value and, and what type of risk you're willing to accept, right? So, so ultimately, you have to be able to answer those questions initially to be able to decide on, on, on the strategies because, because ultimately people in multifamily investing, what they do not understand is the difference between philosophy and strategies, okay? Now, everyone should have their own investment philosophy based on their investor profile. Now, once you have that philosophy, what you wanna do is adapt your strategies according to where you are in the market and where you are in your career, okay? And that's something that is very misunderstood. People say, I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a buy and hold investor, okay? We hear that a lot of multifamily. So, so ultimately what you're saying is, you're saying that you do not have an investment philosophy that you think 
you do, right? You think your philosophy is buy and hold, but buy and hold is not a philosophy. It's a strategy, okay? So what you're saying is ultimately, you're investing all the time throughout the whole of your career using just one strategy. Now, that's very, that's very dangerous because let's say the exit point of that strategy eventually, say the day that you do have to sell upon retirement, because even though you're a buy and hold, you might not be a legacy buy and hold investor. What I mean by that is a legacy buy and hold investor is someone who's just going to pass down the properties to their children, right, upon death or upon retirement. Whereas most buy and hold investors, what they really mean is I'm going to buy and hold until my retirement and then I'll start selling off, right? Well, what happens if during your retirement, you're in a trough in the market cycle, right? What if you're at that part of the market cycle where you're at the bottom of it and it's a really bad time to sell? Well, that's the mistake of, of always investing using only one strategy. So what I would say is that you have to adapt, your, you have to establish your philosophy, understand that your investor profile is going to change over time, and that the market cycle moves through phases. There are different phases in the market cycle, and your strategies, you have to be able to use different strategies at different phases of the cycle and at different phases of your your career as, as your profile changes or adapts or morphs. And uh, that's how you then establish, well, with this property, should I buy it or sh and hold it or should I sell it or should I just refinance it? What should I do? And I'll give you a very concrete answer uh, once, we've, once I've explained all this. Uh, uh, I have a, a student here because I, I do teach real estate investing courses. We actually built a college. We call it the College of the MREX. Now, you don't have to, it's not college-level education, but what we're, what we're saying is that from everyday multifamily investors, if you really want to learn college-level stuff without having to go to college, well, we have a couple courses that we teach you, very high-level stuff, very concrete. Uh, you still need coaching from coaches and, 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 and mentors and all that stuff. We, only, we actually teach courses, right? But what, so, so one of my, my students in these courses uh, he's a very successful real estate investor in Montreal, in, in Canada, which is a Montreal is the is the most important multifamily market in Canada. It's a very strong multifamily market, very competitive. Uh, now he was up to about I guess 150 units, right? All on his own, no outside money, no passive money, and uh, he started having trouble refinancing out of his properties because what he was doing is he was a very big value add investor. So. So he was using two strategies, value-add and buy-and-hold, right? But he was erroneously thinking that value-add and buy-and-hold was his investment philosophy, right? Which it's not. It's Those are two strategies that are part of a philosophy. So he came to me and he said, well, look, you know, uh, uh, banks have now started to time their DSCR ratings and their LTVs. Therefore, you know, I'm buying a property at a million dollars. I'm putting in... $300,000 into it, and now the market value of that property is $2 million, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm not able to refi at $2 million because of the banking standards. They're only allowing me to refi out of 1.6. So now if, that, if they're letting you refi out of 1.6 on a 75% LTV, what, that, what they're saying is, well, you have to leave in 25% of 1.6 plus $400,000, right? So that's a lot of equity that he's not able to pull out because he was doing too much of a good job at value add. Mm -hmm. 
And the capital markets, the banks, are not being able to follow market value. They're being, you know, banks, especially in Canada, uh, are much more conservative than in the U.S. But even in the U.S., there are a lot of people buying properties, and they're not able to refi the whole value because their total loan dollars are blocked by either LTV or DSCR, what I call economic value. The economic value is not as high as market transaction value. Therefore, instead of leaving 25% of equity, you're leaving 25 plus, in his case, $400,000. Now, that's where I said to him, perfect. I looked at his portfolio and I said, well, you have to adapt your strategies. You have to change the strategies. You can no longer at this moment use the buy and hold strategy. You have to use the fix and flip strategy now because you're too good at fixing value add and you're not able to pull out as, as much equity as you used to be through, through refinancing. Therefore, now you have to seriously consider selling that property because you can go and get $2 million for it on the market right now. So that's an extra, extra $400,000 because he was able only to refinance 1.6 out of it. So now he's able to get that, the full market value, pull that cash out, and he has access to a lot of opportunities. He has a really strong bird dog network. So his cost of opportunity is very high if he's leaving all that equity in these properties that are all stabilized, right? He's making way more money by doing more value-add stuff. So he made the decision, and now he holds zero properties. Mm -hmm. He has sold all his 140 units because that has allowed him to get more and more cash rich, leave less and less money in equity and properties, and gain access to more and more opportunities. And ultimately, his annual portfolio total return on investment is in the 40s to 70% IRR, whereas while he was doing buy and hold, his overall portfolio was only returning him maybe 20% if you consider the weighted average uh, return on investment. So, so that's how I would attack kind of that that that, uh, that um, I know that's a very long-winded answer, but you know that's no. I think that's the right answer, right? So I mean, the the return on equity, which is date right now. I mean, on his deal, right? There was so much of date equity not producing cash, right? And if your cost of capital, which means the which is also equal to opportunity outside, is right. much higher, you might as well just cash that out by selling it off, right? Uh, right, because the refinancing is leaving you too illiquid. You know? Yeah, yeah. Recently, I mean, the banks has been more stringent on refi, right? So the, the last refi I did, they did ask me to leave 5% my cash basis, which they never did in the past, which yeah. things have changed. I think that's okay. That's how the banks work. You know? so, it's, it's okay, but the, the, the problem is that, you know, uh, on, a, uh, on a, a $50 million property, you know, that's $2.5 million less cash you have for the next acquisition, right? Correct, correct, correct. So... So yeah, I mean, it depends on what is the cost of capital outside plus how much you can pull out and how much your equity is stuck on it. So so coming back to market cycles, because I think uh, this is one thing that I want to ask you because I think you have, you have studied with uh, Dr. Glenn Muller. So right now, if I look at the latest Q1 forecast for apartments, we are in the hyper supply market. I don't know whether that that's something that you are aware or not, but nationally, nationally, right? Nationally, yeah, it's not it's not a local, but a lot of markets are in hyper supply, right? There's very True. there's very very few market as the expansion cycle, and even though they are in the expansion cycle, they are the last stage of expansion cycle, right? And all the markets that's on expansion cycle are the markets that uh, recovered late, like Las Vegas, Phoenix, and a lot of that kind of market. So. So can you give an overview on what do you think the market is and what should be the strategy be for investors now? 
Well, um, you know, I think I think number one, I would say that uh, I try not look at national or macro market cycles. Okay, I think that's the first thing to consider uh, because multifamily real estate is so hyper local. Okay, you know, so I'd, I'd I'd look much more at those market cycles of over you know of, of hyper supply and. And expansion and contraction. I look at more of like at a metro area. So, so like you, you're in Austin, Texas. I'd look at Austin. I, I wouldn't really consider the multifamily market at large because it's just too, you know, it's it's kind of like looking at cap rates on an unstabilized property, right? It's, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of a, a waste of time. Now, um, I'd say that uh, I, I haven't looked at, at, at recent data of where all the cycle of all where all the markets are okay. in the phases of the cycle. But I mean, I think I think it is safe to say that yeah, most of most of the the, the markets right now are in the later phases of, of 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 the game or later innings, as as Howard Marks likes to say in the stock market and capital markets. Um, but also, as he says, you know, we don't really know. See, the thing with market cycles, and, and you know, whether it be with Dr. Mueller, uh, whether it be with Kieran Trass uh, out of out of Australia. Uh, and out of also the the, all, the other various professors and researchers in market cycles, is that you know they they are predictable in the sense that we know the phases of of the cycle, and each cycle pretty much rhymes, but they're not exactly the same, and we never know what the uh, infection points are going to be between the phases, how uh, intense they'll be. So let's say you go from 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 you know the the, the hyper supply in a, in a market to the contraction phase, well, that might be a very small that that might be a very uh, uh, weak transition. There might not actually be that big of a difference, right? It's not like necessarily the cap rates are five percent in, in Austin, and then you know all of a sudden in six months the cap rate's going to be seven percent, right? That's mm-hmm. and that's not how the multifamily market works anyway. It doesn't turn. It doesn't. It doesn't move that way. It's not the stock market. You know, we don't have daily trading on, on, on fractional stocks, so it's not as volatile. And you know, a, because a, a very important portion of the market in multifamily is uh, is majority in, in majority buy and hold. Well, even though the market does change, they don't move. Therefore, the market doesn't move that much, right? So what I'd say is to 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 not be over indexed on where we are in market in the phases of the market cycle but to just kind of you know kind of be aware of it because what you can then do you know and as i said we don't know how intense the transition is we don't know how long each phase will last right mm-hmm. we might go into contraction and it might only last like a quarter or two quarters right and it might you know transition out of that quite rapidly um so, so, so that's the other thing to consider. So what I'd say is, if you're underwriting a deal, and you're in the oversupply phase of the cycle in the city that you're you're looking at, well, then I'd try and be conservative, and not not, not that airy fairy conservatism that we were talking about earlier, right? <laughs> I, I just try and be more conservative. If if you know I'm not sure of the deal, and I'm kind of on the fence. Well. If I'm in oversupply right now, I might not do the deal, right? Or I might decide to uh, I might decide to oversubscribe my deal, or to have more cash reserves in case the market does transition, right? Mm-hmm. 
So, so it's risk management at that point. That's, that's, that's the way I, I see it. You never stop buying, okay? You never stop being active in the market. That's, that's, if you do, then you're not an investor. You don't know how to invest. You don't know what you're doing. An investor must be invested and is always invested. And an investor is ultimately a risk manager. So it's just your risk management that changes. You want to be less aggressive. Now, it's the opposite. If you feel that now you are in the, at the end of the contraction phase of the cycle and you're kind of on the fence from property, well, then, then I'd jump into it even more. I'd be more aggressive on that acquisition. I'd fight maybe a bit harder for it. So that's kind of how I would modulate uh, my decision-making uh, and, and the parameters that I would use. I, I'd modulate the aggressiveness or the conservativeness. I'd also modulate the amount of capital I actually go into the deal with. You know, I buy in a, in a place where I think the market's going to downturn. Well, obviously, I might... I might use a bit more or less leverage. I might I might use less leverage. You know, I'd, mm. I'd keep a I'd keep a lower LTV and a higher DSR. Uh, I'd keep a higher cash reserve just in case. And I might also do a longer term on my mortgage just so I don't end up with, you know having to refinance in five years in the middle of a in the middle of a, a poor capital market or a property market. Yeah, awesome answer. So Nikolai, I think it has uh, been quite some time. So. Thanks for coming for the show. You want to tell the audience how to reach you and about you and MREX and your process? Absolutely. Uh, you can reach me on Facebook. I'm quite active. LinkedIn also and Instagram. Uh, Nikolai Ray, there are not hundreds of me, so <laughs> there's only one. Uh, also, you can go on the website of the MREX. Uh, if you type MREX in Google or www.mrex.co, make sure you press on the English tab because part of the site, because you know the site is in English and in French because of because part of our business is in Canada. Um, and uh, I will be present at uh, the Multifamily Real Estate Week in July in Jacksonville, Florida, which is going to be an amazing event. So if anyone invests in that market or is around Florida, you should definitely be there. And I'll also be back at that event, the Multifamily Real Estate Week, in Tampa in August and Orlando in August. You can find all the information on the MREX's website. And uh, I hope, uh, I hope to, to have the chance to speak to some of your listeners at one of those events. So, Great. Thank you very much, Nikolai. Thanks a lot. It was, a, it was really a pleasure talking to you. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.